Amen. Well, thank you so much. You guys are sounding nice this morning. Singing, I thought, was particularly good today. So thank you all. That last song that we just sang, it's a very powerful song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. What you may not know about that song is it was written by a hymn writer named uh, William Cooper. It's C-O-W-P-E-R, pronounced Cooper, English hymn writer. And Cooper struggled very deeply and he, was, he, he had very dark episodes where he struggled with depression uh, towards the end of his life. He actually stopped going in public, basically, and to church assemblies and gatherings. And he wrote that hymn from a time when he was in a very dark spot, just trying to assure himself of the gospel that he knew to be true, but still struggled so deeply with embracing that as his own. He became close friends and eventually living for a season with John Newton, uh, who was a pastor at the time in Olney, and they ended up collaborating on, and John Newton, of course, wrote Amazing Grace, most famous hymn that we understand still today in the English language, uh, probably the most famous hymn around. And they collaborated on a hymnal uh, called Olney Hymns, O-L-N-E-Y, and then eventually uh, John Newton would move to London, and he would continue his correspondence for many decades uh, with Cooper and just have this ministry uh, to Cooper, and just an amazing story, um, an amazing assurance that uh, an, an amazing ministry that Newton had to Cooper working with him through these episodes that he would have. Uh, just amazing. And when you know a little bit of the backstory, it just makes the words of that hymn kind of pop a little bit. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. So if you're coming in this morning and you're feeling down, maybe you have your doubts, please know that throughout church history, you are not alone. You're in good company here today. Well, that was sermon number one. That was unplanned, but... <laughs> Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6 and looking at verses 27 down through verses, verse 36. And as you're finding that in your Bibles, do want to note a couple of things for you. One, I'm going to highlight this again at the end of the service. David and I will have a little bit more to say, but we do have our Christmas concert coming up. It's the first Friday in December, so please make plans to be there. Invite a friend. It's going to be a great time. We're going to be outside on our lawn in the front. Uh, David and his group will be playing. It's going to be music, hayrides, just a great time, Christmas favorites. Uh, so please plan to join us for that. And then we'll have our annual members' meeting the following Sunday on December the 3rd. So if you are a part, if you're a member here at the church, I certainly encourage you to be here. If you're not a member, you're still welcome to attend and we'll be discussing uh, various items of business. This is our uh, annual business meeting that we hold every year. I've titled today's sermon Opposites Day and in just a moment I think you might see exactly why we've titled this Opposites Day. We're in a series of messages that's really about one message that Jesus gave, and this was the message called the Sermon on the Plain. And you might not be as familiar with that. Maybe the sermon that's more familiar would be the Sermon on the Mount. I believe Jesus gave very similar messages probably multiple times in different venues and different places. And so there's a lot of overlap between what he said over in Matthew 5 through 7. It's a much longer recording of that sermon than we have here in Luke, but a lot of the same types of principles. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I have to admit, as we look at this, some of these things are just hard for us to wrestle with and wrestle through. 
We've been doing a series here in our equipping hour at nine o'clock on hard passages, hard sayings in the Bible. And we've noted a few different times that sometimes something can be hard just because it's hard to interpret it and to figure out like, okay, what exactly did Paul mean here? We wrestled through a passage this morning. Alex Love led us uh, wrestling through Romans 7. What exactly is Paul talking about and getting at? There's other passages that are hard, not because it's difficult to figure out, it's just hard to do. And I think what you're going to find a lot in here in the Sermon on the Plain is it's just hard to apply these things. And it's challenging for us at a very, very deep level. As I was studying this, I was reminded of this Mark Twain quote. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I think many of us, after we look at this passage this morning, you'll feel much the same way. This is hard stuff for us. Not hard to understand. I don't think this morning will be particularly intellectually over-challenging for us, but it is hard for us to understand how to apply, perhaps. And I remember in school, we used to do a thing every year around homecoming week called Opposites Day. You guys done Opposites Day with the kids probably at some point. Um, I actually looked this up. This is still a thing. Uh, maybe it's just in homeschool communities that we exist in. Opposites Day, where you wear your clothes backwards. Kids love it. You do opposites. You eat spaghetti for breakfast and pancakes for dinner. Pancakes for dinner sounds fantastic. Spaghetti for breakfast, I'm not in on that. You eat your dessert first before you eat your meal. Again, some of us could support a permanent change. You can, sub, you can do all kinds of things, like trying to say the alphabet backwards, which I don't think I could do. Uh, some of you could probably do that. You count everything backwards, you know, maybe 100 and down. Possibilities are endless, and you're teaching kids lessons about opposites. What's the opposite of this word or that word? And it's just a fun thing that you can do with the kids. Well, we come to Jesus and his Sermon on the Plain, and as you read this passage, you might feel like, we're stuck in opposites day. As we looked last week, we see the one that Jesus pronounces as blessed, all right? If you go look up the hashtag blessed on Instagram or Facebook or whatever you use, you probably won't find this. So who are the blessed ones? Four characteristics that are given. In verse 20, the blessed ones are the poor and the hungry and the sad and the outcast. You might say, well, wait a minute. I think that's the opposite. Are we stuck in opposites day here, Jesus? And we mentioned last week that these things are actually kind, if you just take it and say, well, Jesus said it's blessed to be poor, hungry, sad, and outcast, you can pretty easily make yourself those things, right? It's pretty easy to do. All you have to do, make some bad investments and you'll become poor you know, leave your money in your car with, take it all out in cash, leave it on the front seat or in the dash maybe and go park at, you know, a local parking lot for a little while. You will be poor very soon. And because of that, you might end up being hungry because you don't have any money now to buy yourself food or you could just skip a few meals. If you do both of those things, you'll probably be sad. So that will follow. This is a natural outflow of that. And then you might get mocked by your friends for leaving all your money on the dash and you will become an outcast. So you can become all these pretty quickly and pretty easily if that's your only goal. I think we have to needle in a little bit further though. What is Jesus getting at? 
Is he just saying that being those things is the one who's blessed, who's recognized, who's seen by God? I think the key is actually later on. It's on account of the Son of Man that you become these things. Now you are the blessed ones. Now you are the ones who, that God sees, that he knows. So opposites day. We see last week the poor, the hungry, the sad, and the outcast. And then he pronounces a series of blessings and then the corresponding woes that go with that. Just a little bit of structure for our text. Maybe this is helpful to you as you look at it. Luke is a very organized thinker. Some of you who are maybe have an engineering or a mathematical bent, you'll appreciate so much what Luke does because he's very structured. He's always taking us somewhere. And we dive into a particular set of verses, and sometimes it's hard to get the big picture of what all he's doing with these verses. But this is basically the structure in our little mini section in our neighborhood of the text that we're going to be in today. So there's four blessings. We just saw those. There are four corresponding woes. So blessed are you who are poor and woe to those who are rich. Blessed are the hungry. Woe to those who are full. Blessed are the sad. Woe to those who laugh. Blessed are the outcasts. Woe to you when people say all kinds of good things about you, when you don't have trouble in this life because you will in the next. And so that's what Jesus is doing. So they correspond to each other. So we saw that last week. This week we want to look at this second set of fours, the four commands, and then the four examples. And as I've mentioned already, these are not particularly hard to understand, but they are particularly hard to apply. And you'll see that. It's an upside-down kingdom, as we've noticed a number of times. Jesus commands us, tells us to do things that just don't seem normal. John Calvin in his Institutes, he said some of the things that Jesus commands, like here, he called it, it's utterly against human nature. Like this is very anti-human to try to do these sorts of things. What you're going to see as we work our way through this is most of life, you probably operate on the principle of what we could call reciprocity right? You do something for me, I'll do something for you, right? Or maybe in your business world, in your negotiations, you use terms like quid pro quo, right? You do this for me, I'll do that for you. Scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And this is how life works. Do a little something for me, I'll do a little something for you. And that's what keeps the world going around. What Jesus is going to do is he's going to blow up that paradigm and say, actually, As Christians, what you should do is look for the person that can't return anything and be extra kind to them. That's just opposite. It's contrary almost to the way that we're wired in human nature. And Jesus knows that he's calling on them to do something different, to be a different kind of person in this kingdom that he's building. So these four commands, and then we'll see four examples which really verify and back up these four commands, all right? So what are the four commands? Number one is this, love the unlovable. Number two, do good to the no good. Number three, bless the cursors. And number four, pray for your abusers. All right, let's see our text and you'll see where these come in. Verse 27, Luke chapter six and verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. As I said, not particularly difficult to understand, particularly difficult to apply. So let's get into it. Loving the unlovable. Can we just first of all, recognize a category here of unlovable, or maybe, to soften it a little, difficult to love, all right? There are some people in life that are harder for you to love than other people in life, and let's just recognize that's reality. It's difficult. It's hard. Jesus here calls them enemies, those who are on the opposite side of you, We think of enemy in a war context, but this doesn't have to be that dramatic. It could be that person that's just really difficult, that's always on your case. Love them. Love the unlovable. We need to talk about this word love. We mention this from time to time, but it's important, particularly here. When we say the word love, we typically are talking about an emotion, right? Uh, Something that we feel, a feeling of love. It's not exactly what Jesus is getting at. Love is a verb. Love is something that you do, and that's how you can be commanded to love your enemies. He can't command you how to feel about your enemies. He can command you to love your enemies. So we have to be clear what we're speaking about here. We talk about, we use this word all the time, right? And we talk about something like, I fell in love. Now just think about that as if I'm just minding my own business walk on a walk one day and I just fell into a hole. I'm completely passive, right? I'm just walking along and I, I fell in love. What was I supposed to do? I couldn't do anything about this. The opposite of that, of course, is true too. We talk about love like it's just something you fall into or it's like a tree that you can fall out of. Well, I don't know what happened to my marriage. We just fell out of love. It's like, well, there's a series of choices that were made which caused you to feel differently, but that's not what love is. We overuse this word too, right? We talk about love of everything, and I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to talk you out of using the word. You could say something like, I love my spouse, I love my wife, I love my husband, I love my church, I love the scripture, I love the Lord. Or you could speak of something that's maybe less important, I love a good espresso, as all Christians do, right? (laughs) I love a beautiful day outdoors. I love a good book. We could speak of loving the creator of the universe. We can also speak of our love for cheeseburgers and ice cream. And that's part of the issue. 
it's always a little bit of a fearful thing when we talk about food, right? You know, getting close to 11 o'clock on a Sunday. I understand. But we use this, we use this term love for everything. And so we, we need to get a little bit more definition on what, what do we mean, you know, when we're talking about love. And we're talking about a verb, and Jesus is going to play this out. So we don't have to do a full word study on this throughout the rest of Scripture right now. I think the rest of this passage is showing you what it means to love your neighbor. It's not, he's not talking about a feeling. Here's the thing, though. If you act as if you love someone, you'll find that the emotion of love follows, okay? C.S. Lewis said it so well. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. I think this is really true. Lewis goes on. He says, if you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do good to him in turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. He goes on in that section of the book, Mere Christianity. He goes on to say that good and evil multiply at compounding interest. You ever notice that? It multiplies at compounding interest. When you give yourself over to an evil desire, particularly towards a person, and you say something cutting or harsh that you shouldn't have said, you'll find that the next line flows pretty easily and easily, and all of a sudden, you're way down the road to a place that you never thought you'd be, saying things you never thought you'd say. But the opposite is true as well. If you arrest that thought early, and you choose to love that person, you choose to speak a kind word, then you'll find that that emotion follows as well. It's generally true. I think this might be some of the best advice that I could possibly give you as far as relationships go. Maybe in a relationship with a spouse, maybe it's with a kid, maybe whatever relationship that is, don't just confine that to um, a marriage relationship, although it certainly applies. As a husband, you might feel like, I don't have the same type of love that I had for my spouse early on. Well, what are we doing to cultivate that? Love her as Christ loved the church. It's not an emotion, it's an act. It's a series of decisions that you make. Students, you may not feel the emotion of love for your parents or those difficult classmates. Act as if you do love them. Do loving things towards them, and then the emotions will typically follow. Here's the problem, though. A lot of times we don't actually want that to change. We kind of like sitting in our stink a little bit. We kind of like wallowing in my dislike, my distrust, my negative emotions towards another person. And we don't actually want to change it. And so you don't take any acts of love. Because you actually, if you're honest with yourself, you enjoy sitting in it. And that's part of the reason why we don't change sometimes. It's because we don't actually want to change. I think that's true. Act as if you loved. It's, an, it's a verb, not an emotion. My father-in-law sometimes will say, we've, he's used this with kids before, want is a user option. And here's what he means by that. If you tell your kid, hey, go clean your room, and they say, I don't want to clean my room. He says, want is a user option. Go clean your room. Like, not exactly relevant to the point. You're gonna, you need to do this thing. And I think that's somewhat what Jesus is getting at. When he stood up in, in front of his disciples and says, love your enemies, I could hear one of them saying, I don't really want to love my enemies. They're my enemies. Don't you know what an enemy is, Jesus? 
You're doing this wrong. He says, I, don't, I didn't ask you if you wanted to. I told you to do it. Again, not hard to understand, hard to apply. The motion of love is optional. Actions of love aren't. It will follow, though. So love the unlovable. Next, these commands are just packed in here in verses 27 and 28, and then he'll spend the rest of the text sort of unpacking what these are. There'll be a lot of overlap between these. Love your enemies. And then he says, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. That is, again, very difficult for us to hear. I think this text and this teaching from Jesus, which I do believe he gave multiple places, multiple times, I think it sank in very deeply for the early apostles. Because you see, you see little hints of this come out in Peter. Um, particularly, you see it come out in Paul. This is Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. I've just pulled a couple of lines out of this. There's obviously much more there. Paul says something very, very similar to what Jesus says here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And the text goes on to say, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And we'll talk more about that text in just a moment. But a lot of parallels. Doing good to those who are no good, who mean harm for you. Taking a cup of water to your enemy. Helping them up. We'll speak of that more in just a second. But that's such an important reality. So do good to the no good. Next, bless those who curse you. Jesus says it, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. These kind of blend together. Bless those who curse you. In the Old Testament, this idea of blessing, it's a major theme, and it was a major issue in the Old Testament. There's a few times where the patriarchs in Genesis, they bless the wrong person, and for many of us, it just sounds strange. It's like, why don't you just take it back, right? Like, oh, sorry, I already gave away the blessing. It's like, well, he wasn't supposed to get it, so just like, can we just do a refund? Like, you know, exchange this and I get it now. He's like, but it was, it was irrevocable. Like, I've given the blessing. And so when, when they're thinking of blessing, it's a, it's, a much more, it's a much more serious thing maybe than what we think of. And we, you know, as, as I've mentioned before, we use the word blessed all the time, and we typically don't mean it in exactly the same way that the Bible means it. You know, in Southern culture, we use the word bless. If you hear a, you know, classic Southern lady say, bless his heart, that's generally not a good thing that we're doing. Generally means something's gone very wrong, um, and we're showing our pity for this person. So it's a blessing. It's not a true blessing, not in a sarcastic sort of way, but you're actually bringing blessing. You're wishing good for those who are actively cursing you, counter-human behavior. And then pray for your abusers. That one may be particularly hard to hear as well. Pray for those who abuse you. That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 28. Pray for your abusers. There's a couple of examples of this that I think are just great, um, obvious and clear examples. Jesus says this. This is at the crucifixion. And just before he dies, those soldiers who are 
in the act of crucifying him. They are killing him actively, slowly, painfully, with the design of inflicting the maximum amount of suffering before he dies. What's Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't understand, Lord. Show compassion on these people. That's blessing those who are cursing you. That's praying for those who are abusing you. You might say, well, that's Jesus, right? Wasn't he the God-man? Um, he had an unfair advantage. Um, he, he was really close to the Lord in his humanity, and he was God in the flesh. Well, Stephen also said something very similar. Acts 7 and verse 60, he's the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts. He's being stoned. So he's being stoned to death. And we, we might read over that phrase, he's being stoned, and maybe we read through it a little bit too quickly sometimes, not to get too graphic or draw this out too much here, but just think about what that means. They're throwing baseball, softball, cantaloupe size stones at a human until they die, all right? That's a terrible way to go. And so this is what's happening to Stephen. He's finally overcome with his injuries. He falls to his knees. He's just about to die. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and he died. His last words that we have recorded. Blessing those who curse you, praying for those who abuse you. Have you ever noticed what a difference prayer actively praying for another individual, what a difference that can make in your relationships. You ever notice that? We pray so that the Lord would change people, but also on a relational level, if you're getting into it with your significant other maybe or someone, and you say, you know what, let's just pray about this, let's take 15 minutes, and you come back together and say, I've been praying for you for the last 15 minutes, you sit down, I got something to say. Is that how it goes? It's not, right? What's happened in that process? If you actively, earnestly, really say, I'm gonna take this to the Lord and I'm gonna pray, what happens in that act of submitting this to the Lord is he begins to soften you, right? And he begins to soften your demeanor and your attitude towards that person. And this is why Jesus says, pray for them. You might say, well, I, can't, I don't think I could do this. It's like, well, it starts with prayer to do this, <laughs> prayer to actually respond in this way. We'll play that out a little bit more later as well. Okay, so four commands, and then these get sort of expressed in four different examples. Four different examples. Now, let's see what they are. Verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. What is meant by this? Did he literally mean when somebody hits you in the face, strikes you in the cheek, that you turn and say, give me another one, please? Is that what he's talking about? And it very well could have been. We have a couple of examples of this. Jesus again at his trial in John 18. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by, Jesus struck him with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I'm said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So Jesus' response here is, you hit me. I'm not going to respond in a, in a violent sort of way. I'm not going to hit you back. But he does question their authority to do this, which is interesting. 
So I don't think the turning of the cheek is necessarily meant to tell us, as a Christian, you just need to become a doormat for the world to walk on. He challenges their authority. He confronts the injustice of what's going on. You shouldn't do that. Why are you hitting me? I'm innocent. Paul does the exact same thing with a little bit more spice in Acts chapter 23. Annas, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. What's Paul's response? Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. So it's like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you hitting me? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? I'm a Roman citizen. You shouldn't be doing that. So he confronts him. Notice he doesn't take up arms. He doesn't go and strike him back and cause a brawl. But he does stand up to him and say, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. And I, I don't think this turn the other cheek. It doesn't turn us into doormats. I think you can confront in a, in a nonviolent way, but in a clear way, this is wrong. This is, this is abuse. You shouldn't do this. So, two great examples of that. It's possible as well. There's probably some other things going on here with turning of the, the striking on the cheek. It was probably a symbol as well of being put out of the synagogue, sort of a ceremonial, you know, slap you on the, on the face and get out of here. It was a banishment of sorts. And Jesus is probably alluding to that custom as well. So just a few things in summary here on turning the cheek. It does not mean ignoring unjust, ungodly actions. It does mean we are not to retaliate and fight like the world fights. We have a different way, a different methodology that we follow. So the turning of the cheek, and then he moves into some other things as well. You turn the cheek, you don't fight like the world fights. It's fine to confront, it's fine to say you shouldn't do that, but you don't fight like the world fights. The one who takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. So he's referring to the outer garment and the inner garment. Somebody comes and steals your jacket from you, like, do you want my shirt too? Um, it's, it has an arresting effect, doesn't it? When someone is innocent and they stand up to someone who is doing something unjust, it has an impact. You give them more than they ask for. You give your money more than what people expect. Give to everyone who begs from you, and for one who takes away your goods, don't demand it back. It's an amazing thing here. Daryl Bach was helpful as I was reading him on this passage. He said this, Jesus' point here is not to stand on a street corner and allow oneself to be robbed, but that ministry in the context of rejection, which includes economic isolation, requires being vulnerable again and again, missionary work can expose one to danger. But that should not stop us from making multiple efforts to win people. So you just keep coming back over and over and over again for the sake of the Lord and his kingdom. The point is the mission. You don't request that money back, the one who takes it from you. I have a friend, he... Uh, he said, he had this happen a few times in a row where he went to a gas station and somebody comes up to him and asks him for money. He says, oh, well, I'm not gonna give you cash, but I'll put some gas in your car. He said, I'll put some gas in your car if you'll give me five minutes. And he shares the gospel with him. And he told me about this and he said, man, it cost me $50 every time I share the gospel. <laughs> and 
and he's, he's happy to do it. And I haven't talked to him in a while about that, but I, I'm sure he's still doing that. He's like, yeah, it's worth 50 bucks to me to sh- be able to share the gospel with someone. That's, that's giving without the expectation of somebody reimbursing you. He's not getting that back. He knows that. It has profound impact on people when we're generous with our time, our resources, money, when we refrain from returning evil for evil. Again, I think this teaching had such an impact on the Apostle Paul. He says, to the contrary, this is Romans 12 again, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink that by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, he quotes Proverbs 25 here about heaping burning coals on their head, and there's a little bit of discussion around what exactly does he mean by this. It could be like judgment, coals of fire. You're, you're pouring more judgment on that person that the Lord in the end will judge them. I don't think that's exactly the point. Could be an allusion to the ceremony of repentance, where you would have could be. They've come to their senses. I think probably more likely, though, here is the coals are a reference to the shame that's brought when you're confronted with your sin. When somebody just stands up to you and says, this is wrong, and I'm going to let you do it, it, that just has a very arresting effect on people, doesn't it? When you say, this is wrong, but you don't stop them from doing that wrong thing. Look me in the face and lie to me. That's what I'm asking you to do. Look me in the face. And there's a confrontation that happens. It takes great strength to confront in this way, doesn't it? In some of my classes sometimes, I'll just ask them a simple question. Did you read all the material, yes or no, that you were assigned? And I tell them, I say, I'm going to force you to lie to me if you don't read the material or face the consequences. And some of them are honest enough and you at least force them to come face to face with what I'm doing here. I'm not just gonna kinda answer the questions pretending like I read the chapter. I'm just, I'm just straight up. And you do that and what it does is it forces people to think about what they're doing. When you're forced to look someone in the eye and face the results of your words, your actions. By the way, this is a footnote of a footnote, but let me just say this. Our online communication, I think short circuit something sometimes here. When you just hide behind your screen or keyboard and you just fire things out, you don't have to watch the consequences of your words, right? If we're in a conversation and I say something that might be maybe you disagree with or it's a little bit confrontational, I kind of have to watch your face go, you know, do one of those. And then I might start backing off my words or I might try to clarify or, you know, it might create some discomfort, you know, between us and the relationship. When you're behind a screen, like, you don't, you don't know. You just kind of, you know, you fire it off. And I think we communicate a lot this way and you're not really having to deal directly, immediately with the things that you say. And I think that's part of why this outrage machine is just ratcheted to level 900, you know, in online communication sometimes. So that was footnote. We can come back now. When you have to look someone in the eye, when they turn the other cheek, when they give away their possessions, it has a way of stalling out evil. There's a strength in the confrontation that's going on here. He moves then into this, what's called the golden rule. This is verse 31. Verse 31, 
And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The golden rule. It governs the other rules. Now you could press this in all sorts of ways, but I think the point, again, is clear enough. Ask yourself the question, what would I want someone to do in my situation? How would I want to be treated? Now, I think we have to stop and think about this for a minute. We are different types of people with very different interests and very different desires. So I think part of what Jesus is getting at here and part of what we have to think about is not only do what you would want done for you, but do what you would want, think about the situation in the way that you would want it to be thought about. All right, let me give a clarification on what I mean by that. Silly illustration, but I think it works. Some of you, if, we, if, if you told me it was your birthday um, this week, all right, there's kind of two poles in here, and I think some of us, you know, fall somewhere in between this. Some people think a birthday is meant to be a month-long celebration filled with daily fireworks, singing, dancing, banners, balloons, presents, cakes, streamers, national holiday, celebrating your birth. You're here, you've arrived, and you, you just deserve, like, a season for existing. Others think birthdays are best celebrated, maybe in the quiet with the family, let's have dinner, let's just go for a walk, read a good book, go for a bike ride, whatever it is. And so here's my application of that. Do to others as you would want done to you means I'm going to think about what that person would enjoy and appreciate, all right? If they're not the banner streamer person, it's not the best thing to do to go throw the grand party for the person that doesn't actually want that, okay? So it's more than, well, I would want this, and for those of you who are a little bit more low-key about these types of things, like myself, you should probably learn that not everybody's like you, all right? And so you should probably give some attention, at least, to these events. Um, that's your tip, relational advice for the day. Give some attention, at least. So doing to others as you would want them to do to you, it means thinking as trying to think, at least, as the other person thinks, and serving them in a way that ministers and helps them. And this is, Jesus is giving this as a principle. Let this govern. Think about, put yourself in the other person's shoes. What would they want and desire? In the next set of verses, we won't spend much time on these, but he basically plays out this idea of reciprocity in relationships. So if you love someone who loves you, everybody does that. Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, that's no benefit. Everybody does that. If you lend to those that you expect to receive something from, everybody does that. You're supposed to be different. Verse 35, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. As I mentioned earlier, we operate a lot of relationships in this quid pro quo sort of way. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. Years ago, I had a friend, and he was, he was, talking, about, he was talking about buying a boat. And he said, if I bought this boat right now, I would have to have marriage counseling. And I said, well, that's perfect. I said, I'll trade marriage counseling for fishing trips, right? It's actually terrible advice, absolutely terrible advice. But we, we tend to operate relationships that way. Well, this person said something mean to me, so I'm going to say something mean to them. 
This person gave me something, so I'm going to give something to them. They put me on their Christmas list. Well, now I got to put them on mine. They bought me a gift. I got to do this. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Scrap that whole system. You do good to those that you don't get. You, you will not get anything from. Those are the ones that the Lord sees, and he'll reward them with his kingdom. It's an amazing thing that he's doing in this passage. It's, it really is opposites day. You may come to this, and you might think, well, I can't do all that. <laughs> Loving your enemies, being kind, praying for those that abuse me, I don't think I have that in me. And let me again welcome you into good company. I think if you don't feel some tension this morning about this is really hard to do, I need some help, I think there's something wrong. I haven't really done my job helping you see what this text is doing. If you don't feel some sense of, wow, that's really difficult. And I think that brings us to the table this morning. It brings us to what Christ has done. You know, you've never done that perfectly. Nobody has, nobody in this room. You might look around and think, well, they got it all together. Can I just assure you, they don't got it all together, all right? They don't. We believe here at this church that we are sinners, we fall short of the glory of God, and we believe that we are being sanctified by the Lord as we repent of our sins, he changes our desires, he begins to change us, but it's not an instantaneous process. We are still walking together in this process of what we call sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. As we repent of our sins, we trust in him, and we follow him. And so as we come today, we're gonna to celebrate communion in just a moment. Just to give you a little bit of context for what we do here at this church, we don't believe that there's anything necessarily magical about the elements themselves that you're gonna receive in just a moment. We believe that this is a time to remember what Christ has done. You're gonna receive two things. There's gonna be a little piece of bread which reminds us of the body that was given for us. Jesus lived in a real human body and he died and he was raised again and he died for us because we fall short and because we haven't lived up to the standard. And then there's also the cup, the juice, reminds us of the blood that was given for us. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. This is the new covenant which was given for us. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate in communion. If you're not sure exactly where you stand, or maybe you don't know exactly what those terms even mean, we would just ask you, just watch this morning, just observe, and we would love to have a conversation with you afterwards about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We'll ask our servers to come forward now.